to Taking the Party Out of Politics. This is a podcast about understanding how politics is supposed to work, why it isn't working, as well as it should be working, and what we might be able to do about it. Because by understanding a little bit more clearly how things are supposed to work and why they're a bit messed up, we might be able to get things to work a bit better, perhaps even a lot better. This is a little journey we're taking together about the systems and functioning of politics. Systems which we should all understand, because those systems affect all of our lives all of the time. And this podcast is about how we might be able to make those systems work a bit better. In season one, we took a look at how government is supposed to work, from the perspective of us, the voters. This is season two, in which we'll be looking at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of someone trying to get elected and then trying to do a good job. Now, looking ahead in season three, we'll be looking at what we might be able to do to make things work a bit better. Importantly, when we get to season three, we'll be sharing our ideas, but also sharing some of the best of your ideas about how to make things work a bit better. Let's just have a quick review of what we covered in season one. In the introduction, we had an overview of what the issues are and a general idea of the route we're going to take through all of this and why this is important. In episode two, we started to think about why we have a government at all and the tacit, perhaps unspoken, agreement which exists between those who do the governing and those who agree to be governed. It's what we call the social contract. This involves finding a fair and equitable balance between being better off within a society, safety, the opportunity to work with others to achieve more than we could individually, and on the other hand, giving up some freedoms, freedom to do what we want, whenever we want, whether that's playing music really loudly, only washing if we're really in the mood, and not having to be too friendly with anyone because, well, nobody wants to be friends with a smelly person who plays their music too loudly. It also involves finding a fair and equitable balance between things like the amount of tax we pay and the amount of benefit we get from paying that tax, such as new roads, a health service, a police force, and so on. In episode three, we then discussed what we mean by the word democracy, along with other ideas such as consideration for others and respect for minorities. The majority doesn't always force the minority to do exactly what the majority wants to do, as long as what the minority wants to do doesn't really impact negatively on what the majority wants to do, at least not too much. We then moved from there to start to explore the particular form of representative democracy, which we use, because we can't all be involved in the details of every single little decision. To get around that problem, we elect our representatives to study all the details on our behalf and to take the decisions for us. And in episode four, we started to explore the mechanics of electing representatives and ultimately a government. Well, how all of that is supposed to work and why it isn't working as well as perhaps we imagine that it should do. In fact, perhaps why it's actually impossible for it to work, given the way in which the system is set up. For example, if at least a third of our elected representatives are MPs, are elected with less than 50% of the votes cast in their constituency, 
then how can we hope that it's possible for those representatives to try to represent all the voters in each of their constituencies? If a new MP has promised a set of things, then to get re-elected, it would be reasonable for the new MP to try to deliver those things. But if only less than 50% of the voters in their constituency voted for those things, then a majority of voters didn't want those things. So how does the new MP do a good job of representing all the voters in their constituency? And even if the new MP had over 50% of the votes in their constituency, there'd still be a large minority, still tens of thousands of people who wanted different things. How do you represent their needs and preferences, as well as representing the needs and preferences of the tens of thousands of people who did vote for you? It's a pretty impossible balancing act. With a slightly wider national perspective, our governments, which since 1935 have not received a majority of the vote nationally, our governments are there to represent us. But since the majority of people actually voted against the political party which gets to form the government, then again, our government doesn't really represent us at all. We're still lucky to get good people, at least some of the time, who want to become MPs. And that's great. But when they're able to do a good job, it's mostly because they've managed to do so despite the system, not because of the system. That, of course, is what we're going to look at during this season. And then in episode five, we looked at the balance between government and parliament. Our government is quite a small bunch of MPs, about 26 or so out of the 650 who are elected. And they are trying to set the agenda, to make a plan, to carve out a path to the future for our country. And Parliament, which is all the rest of the MPs, plus the 26 ministers who are in the government, well, Parliament is trying to check up on what the government is trying to do. Trying to make sure that the plans have been well thought through. Trying to make sure that everything has been taken into account. Trying to make sure that avoidable mistakes aren't made and trying to make sure that all of our interests have been taken into account. So government is trying to make things happen. Parliament is trying to make sure that those things are reasonable, and that they are in all of our interests. In episode 6, we looked at manifestos, those list of pre-election promises, the lists of what candidates and political parties say that they will do if they get elected. And we considered whether it's possible for us to rely on them, because very often the things on those lists don't get done, or not in the way that was originally intended, and instead other things get done. Short answer, well, no, we can't really rely on them. But at the same time, the manifesto does give us, or should give us, some important insights into the sorts of things which that political party is going to want to do if they get elected. Perhaps not exactly the list of things which will definitely happen, but this is the list of what they say that they want to do. So we should really pay attention when we cast our vote. Because even if it isn't exactly those things which are put into practice, it might well be some things which are quite similar. We also considered whether governments have the right to claim that any one item on a list of manifesto promises has a particular status after the election. Just because such and such was on a list of a hundred or so promises... Can the government claim to be on a special mission, what we call to have a mandate? Is it on a special mission to deliver on that promise? Short answer, almost certainly not. 
Finally, in between the end of Season 1, with our summary in Episode 7, we had a short bonus series focusing on the five impossible puzzles for representative government, including the difficulty of selecting a good local representative, and a good government, and a list of manifesto promises, all with just one vote, once every five years. Those are just some of the issues we'll be coming back to when we look at possible solutions in Season 3. So that was Season 1. Today, we're starting to look at the mechanics of government and the mechanics of Parliament and the mechanics of the balance between government and Parliament. We're looking at how all of that is intended to work. Now, quick spoiler alert, this balance between government and Parliament, well, it isn't working as well as it could do. And so, of course, we're going to be looking at where and when and why that balance isn't working. So why isn't our government working the way it's supposed to? Well, we began series one by saying that this is actually about things that you already know, more or less. Nothing we've covered so far has probably really been much of a surprise. Perhaps you hadn't lined up all of the pieces quite yet, so the idea has been to try to help to organise it all, to put it into some context, but not really to produce any great surprises. Now we're going to explore things further. It's probably still not going to produce any great surprises because you probably know most of these things already. All we're doing is to bring it together. In part one, we looked at why we have a government. We explored how the general systems are supposed to work in selecting representatives, how those representatives go on to become members of parliament, and in some cases to form the government. We also looked at some of the challenges which those systems face. Some of those challenges mean that either our system isn't working as well as it could, or that we're not using it in the best possible way, or that our system is trying to achieve too many things all at the same time. In season two now, we're going to look at things from different perspectives, such as what it's like for an individual who's trying to become an MP, rather than the difficulties we face as voters in choosing an MP. We'll also look at why there are even more challenges, and why these mean that things are actually even worse than they already seem to be. And again, looking ahead, in Season 3 we're going to be looking at some possible solutions, ways in which we might use our current system better, and therefore hope to get better government from our system. And importantly, we're interested in your suggestions as to how you think we could improve the way our systems work, or currently don't work. Just email us with your ideas at any time at info at talktogether.info. However, back to today's episode, and let's look at the challenges for someone who's trying to get elected. What's it like for someone who wants to become an MP? Well, let's start with how it's supposed to work and then look at how it actually works. Now, politicians get a hard time from the public and from the media. Sometimes it's deserved. There are some self-serving coasters out there who really aren't doing a good job and who are simply in it for themselves. But on the whole, MPs are trying to do the right thing. Or at least they start out wanting to do the right thing. It's actually pretty amazing that people are prepared to put themselves up for election, given that we all know what a rough time they get for their troubles. But do we actually understand even half the challenges which they face in trying to get elected and then trying to do a good job? Well, let's start by looking at the process of how becoming an MP is supposed to work. And then we'll move on to look at how doing a good job 
as an MP is supposed to work in the next episode. So, deciding to stand for election. Why would someone decide to stand for election? Well, in an ideal world, the answer would probably be something like, I'd like to make the world a better place and to help other people. With my skills and experience, I think I could do this by being an MP for five or ten years. I could contribute my ideas, support other good ideas. I think I could do a good job of representing the people of the area where I live. Well, that sounds nice, doesn't it? So, roughly, how do we think all of that is going to work for someone who feels like that, for someone who wants to do a good job? Well, we probably think it's going to work something like this. So, bringing general life experience, sort of being the sort of representative of the sort of people who live in the constituency, you decide you're going to stand for election. You might have been working as a teacher or as a doctor or as a lawyer or something. You might have been working as a nurse. You might have been doing some job in the constituency. And you decide to stand for election. So you campaign. You say, vote for me. I'm the right choice. And you get elected because you're a good person. And you arrive in Westminster. And once you arrive in Westminster, you try to make things better. You represent your constituents. You scrutinise the legislation to make sure the laws are better. And you check up on the government. You work in select committees. You work in the House of Commons. At the end of it, you do a good job. You get a pat on the back. And at the end of five years, maybe you stand down and go and do a different job. Or maybe you stand again and you return to campaigning. Well, that's more or less what we imagine, isn't it? Sadly, life isn't like that. Today, we're not going to look into what happens after an MP arrives in Westminster. We're going to look at that in our next episode, Being an MP. Today, let's just look at what's involved in becoming an MP. Well, how does it actually work? So what actually happens is that as a career politician, somebody who's already been working in politics, somebody who's already either been working with a political party or working in local government, as a career politician, you decide to stand for election. And the first step is you have to get approved as a candidate by the national party. Any party, you need to get approved by the national party as one of the candidates that they are prepared to have stand on their behalf. Then you need to get selected as a candidate by the local party. So two processes of selection. Then you get to campaign. Now, the local party and maybe the national party will put some energy behind, but you've still got to put an awful lot of effort into campaigning. The personal costs for anybody deciding to stand as an MP are estimated to be a minimum of £10,000 for each election. Some candidates spend up to £100,000 getting elected. And this might take a year, getting known in the constituency, putting your name about, putting your face about. It might be, as well as your existing job, you have to do so much other stuff for up to a year. Is that going to help with your work-life balance? You might lose out on your personal life. Along the way, you're putting your head up and saying, I'm a politician. You might get a lot of personal abuse. And, well, if you get elected, that's great, you get elected. But if you lose, well, pick yourself up because nobody really cares. The political party isn't interested in you if you've lost. So let's start with the cost of getting elected in the first place. The costs of getting elected, it's just huge. There are different aspects to this. 
there are costs of getting selected as a candidate. For most of the national parties, and you do need a party machinery to get elected these days, you need to be approved by the national party, and then also to get selected by the constituency party. The process of getting approved by the national party means that candidates really need to be political insiders, such as parliamentary research assistants or special advisers to ministers, or maybe an existing county or local councillor. This is so that they are going to stand out for the National Party, otherwise the National Party isn't even going to look at them. Once they've got onto the list, the national list, from which a local constituency party might think about selecting them, well, candidates then have to visit constituencies all over the country to find one where there's a suitable vacancy and where the local party likes the look of them. And if they're selected for a constituency which is not near to where they already live, then they might have to move home, and that costs thousands of pounds in stamp duty, legal fees, not to mention the whole change in life for you and for your family. OK, there's that cost. Then there's the deposit, the actual price tag on standing for an election. To stand for Parliament in the UK, a politician has to demonstrate they're serious by what we call putting up a deposit. If you don't get a minimum percentage of the vote, you lose your deposit. Well, to be fair, that's just £500. The real cost of election are elsewhere. There are the costs of campaigning. The costs of producing election leaflets and posters, well, they're normally met by the local party, and they're carefully managed and restricted during the election period. But long before the official campaigning period, the cost of being a candidate can start to build up, maybe a year or more ahead of an election. Now, these costs include things like attending all the events where you need to be seen, perhaps contributing to every good cause at every event, even if you contributed to the same good cause at another event you attended earlier in the same day. Definitely taking time off work to attend all the events and many other things, including putting most of your personal and perhaps professional life on hold for months. The financial costs are definitely measured in the tens of thousands of pounds, sometimes even hundreds of thousands. For example, in her book, Everything You Really Need to Know About Politics, MP Jess Phillips estimates that it cost her family around £40,000 for her to get elected to Parliament. Now, for most of the population, this sort of money just isn't something that they can choose to risk. And on top of this, there's the costs to your personal life. Every weekend, most evenings, for weeks, perhaps months, perhaps years. The stress on your personal relationships and perhaps your home life. Many politicians end up divorced or separated or are just incredibly lucky to have incredibly understanding partners because it's just not normal not to have a personal life. And finally, there's the risk of it all not happening anyway. After all that, when it comes to the election, you can miss out, perhaps just because the local voters don't like the national leader of your party anymore. That means that the people who get elected are, one, people who can really afford the risk of losing, and two, people who really, really want to get elected. It's not something which you or I could just decide to do as a stage in our career. Now, ideally, we want politicians who have a bit of life experience, so that they bring a bit of understanding of how the world works, what's good for people and what isn't good for people. Ideally, we want representatives who are a bit like us, literally, they represent us, 
so that they see the world pretty much in the same way as we do, so that they understand things that are important to us, and so that they're going to be able to work towards getting things which we want and need. After all, they are literally there to be our representatives, and part of being our representative is being representative of us. What we get are people who are prepared to take the risks involved, the risks for them personally. But then what we get is politicians who are risk takers. And this is from MP Jess Phillips again, quote, we start to see politicians taking risks, not just with their own personal or political lives, but with the lives of those across the country, unquote. And finally, what we also get is people who are there because their political parties want them to be there. Now that's all restricting our choice to people who can afford it, to people who are able to, or who are prepared to, take the risk, and to people who are solely focused on politics. Now that's not really giving us a choice between candidates who are really representative of the general population. So that ideal world scenario, I'd like to make the world a better place and to help other people, well, that ideal world might sound nice, but it just doesn't work like that. Our MPs might well start off with all those wonderful best intentions. And in fact, our MPs might genuinely get out of bed every day, still wanting to do the very best for their country and for the world. But the system just doesn't encourage that. In fact, the system, even only at this very first stage of trying to get elected, the system actively discourages people from just wanting to do a good job. To get elected, you have to be not just a certain type of tough-skinned person and a person who is prepared to take the financial and other risks and costs of standing for election, but you also have to have the backing of a political party. That means, even before they arrive in Westminster, what we get are MPs who are political party animals. A political party exists, theoretically, to do good things for a country. But in practice, the first priority of a political party is somewhere between ensuring its own survival and its attempts to get into power, into government. A political party is not going to put its energies behind someone who is not going to work for that political party later on. And that means being someone who is, at least most of the time, going to do what their political party tells them to do. And that means not necessarily doing what the MP actually believes in. Now, seen from the best possible perspective, that's going to involve the new MP in compromising, in working with others, to get at least some things done. Some things which are at least, we would hope, in the interests of the majority of the people in the country. Seen from a less than ideal perspective, perhaps from a more realistic perspective, some might say, it's actually often going to involve the MP in doing what is in the best interests of their political party, and not actually what is in the best interests of their constituents. It often involves doing what the party whips tell them to do. It often involves being loyal to the party hierarchy, just in case this gives them an opportunity to become a minister later on. Far too often, for example, it involves never admitting that somebody from another party might have had a good idea. Well, that's the sort of stuff we're going to look at in more detail in our next episode, Being an MP. For today, the key message here is that becoming an MP is hard. 
it's costly, both in terms of money and in terms of time, and also in terms of the personal sacrifices which the candidate and the candidate's family has to make, and sometimes in terms of the abuse and hassle which a candidate has to face. And to have any chance of success in the vast majority of cases, it means having the backing of a political party. Now, there are occasionally candidates who are elected as independents, but really not very often. Because of the costs involved, and because it depends on a political party, what we get are MPs who are of a very restricted range of personality types, and they're all political party animals. Now, politics is important, because politics affects all of our lives. Politics is about how we organise public spending, how we organise the public services we need, and how we organise society. Political parties are, first and foremost, about their own survival and about their own attempts to get into power, to get into government. Not the same thing. Not at all. So, becoming an MP is hard. And next time, we'll look more into the challenges involved in being an MP. For now, thank you for listening. If you'd like to have a look at the transcripts of the podcast, including links to all of our sources and references, please go to www.talktogether.info and follow the links to the podcast from there. And of course, if you'd like to contact us, not least if you'd like to share any ideas which you have about how we could make things better, or if there are any areas of how politics is supposed to work but why it isn't working, then please email us anytime at info at talktogether.info. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then I hope you'll take the time to tell your friends. And perhaps you could also take a moment to give us a rating wherever you found us. That not only helps other people find us, it just also really makes us feel appreciated. That would be great. Thank you. Yeah.